Welcome to Movie Maker Interviews. I'm Tim Malloy, and today our guest is film critic Glenn Kenny, whose magnificent new book is Made Men, The Story of Goodfellas. This book is deeply researched, incredibly insightful, and just plain funny. It's funny, the stories. Glenn Kenny's a funny guy. He's just funny. It's the way he tells a story and everything. Just, you know, he's funny. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this conversation halfway as much as I did. I'm going to assume you've seen Goodfellas and a few other Scorsese movies too, like The Irishman. If not, don't be a schnook. Go see him. Here's Glenn Kenny, author of Made Men, The Story of Goodfellas, a book I highly, highly recommend. With a lot of books like this, you have the writer trying to go back and reconstruct history, and you don't really have that problem because you actually met with Martin Scorsese while he was making Goodfellas. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of books that are written about classic films are not written by film critics, but they're written by historians. And they're about films that were made so long ago that almost everybody involved in the making of them is dead. <laughs> and this gives those writers an opportunity to really kind of I don't want to say pad, but those books, you know, if you're making something about high noon, um, you can, you know, put in a 30 to 50 page mini biography of Gary Cooper. Um, And in this case, because even though Goodfellas is 30 years old, to my mind, that's not a huge amount of time, but it's substantial. Um, Almost everybody involved in it is still alive and it's still in a lot of senses a contemporary film. So it saved me uh, a lot of, um, what I what could be considered throat clearing in terms of uh, in terms of telling everybody who everybody was. I mean, it's a book that's intended for people who have seen and enjoy the film. Uh, so, um, yeah, and I did meet with Scorsese while he was editing the film, which was a very exciting experience. Um, yeah. I was in my twenties, I guess. I was in my late twenties. I had been working in a magazine called Video Review, and we were having our uh, our tenth uh, anniversary. The idea was to get essays from prominent people about the importance of home video. This is an unusual magazine. You know, you can't really imagine a consumer magazine that was about the topic of home video, equipment, hardware, and also software, laser discs and VHS tapes. Which Um, has hundreds of thousands of subscribers at the time. uh, Yeah. Well, I mean, I think we had about 150. but uh, 150,000 subscribers, I'm not sure, but it was a big, it was a pretty big magazine. <laughs> uh, and uh, so we had 10 years worth of stuff. I hadn't been there for 10 years. But um, for our 10th anniversary, we were going to ask a lot of prominent writers to give us celebratory essays. And uh, I was in, in charge, I was one of the people in charge of helming the project. And I got Dave Barry and, uh, you know, we talked to people on the phone. And I decided, I thought, well, you know, someone who would be great to talk to would be Martin Scorsese because of his uh, experience in film restoration, which began to happen in earnest around the time he made Raging Bull, was promoting Raging Bull, you know, and that led to the founding of the Film Foundation, which has done amazing work over the years. And as a film preservationist, I thought, well, you know, he's a perfect person to talk about home video as a mode of film preservation. So I approached his office and I told him we were paying a lot of money uh, for... uh, um, for the essays, something like $3 a word. Um, and um, I approached his office. I, I said, I'd like to do this. And they said, well, you know, come into the office 
and talk to him and you can do it in as told to yeah. format. So that's what I did. And he was in the middle of editing Goodfellas. It was December of uh, 1990, uh, 1989. It was around near Christmas. And uh, he says, you know, Paul Schrader and I are the only people, it's the Brill Building in Manhattan. And he says, Paul Schrader and I are the only people crazy enough to be working, you know, up to, <laughs> you know, about Christmas, Christmas Eve, et cetera. And he told me about this movie he was making at the time that was called Wise Guy. He was very excited about it. He said it was unlike anything he'd ever done. And it was influenced by tabloid television and by the uh, television series, The Untouchables, um, in terms of the pacing and the, the, the stresses of it. So I found that fantastic. And, I, you know, I was a Scorsese fan to begin with. So, you know, I always looked forward to whatever he would be doing. And... Um, he says in the essay, and by the time we ran the essay in March of uh, 1990, the title had been changed to Goodfellas. Uh, he said, even if it's two and a half hours long, which it ended up being, I'm hopeful it will be one of the fastest paces ever made because it tells a story in a style heavily influenced by documentary TV reporting and these new tabloid shows. Right. Um, while I don't let video change the way I pace my movies, I have always been aware that because of the subject matter of a lot of my pictures, they would more likely more than likely find a bigger audience on cable or video than they would in theaters. Um, so, you know, he was very aware of this and uh, very astute about it as he's remained over the years. And, uh, you know, kind of looking at the big picture in terms of what it means to work with Netflix on a movie called like The Irishman. So, yeah. you know, that kind of gave me, in a way, I, I won't say I was fated to write this book. Obviously that's, very grandiose and stupid thing to say but uh i felt a connection to the movie that was unusual in terms of my connection to a lot of other scorsese movies so when the time came and the idea to do this book came to open the book up with meeting him film seemed like a very natural <laughs> idea yeah you know the detail about it being inspired by tabloid journalism I've, that's never occurred to me before. I don't remember hearing that when the movie came out when I was granted about 14, but it's such a perfect description. There is this like sort of caffeinated or maybe even cocaineized energy to Goodfellas that you feel a little guilty about. It's a combination of new wave and tabloid television because the, the things like still photographs and so on, uh, that was very much, and, and also this, this very quick cutting that was very much influenced by Jules and Jim and things like that. You don't think of, you don't watch Goodfellas and say, aha, Jules and Jim. But uh, a lot of what Truffaut and Godard and Chris Marker were doing using still photographs in quick, mon in quick cutting montages, uh, you know, uh, making these cuts at the speed of thought, as I said to Scorsese in my last interview with him in March of uh, this year, that was also the new wave. But the, 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 the particular stress uh, involved was very much tabloid television. So it's a combination of both, I think. Yeah. And uh, it's kind of what makes it uh, really interesting. Because it if it was just tabloid television, it wouldn't have much more dimension. You talked to him in March after the Oscars, right? Uh, yes. It was a very fraught kind of uh, thing because um, I'd been trying to talk to him for a year and three months. I had contacted his office 
before I even had made the book deal, I hadn't signed the contract. I, I had done an interview with Nick Pileggi, who was very kind and very wonderful. And that was the basis of my sample chapter yeah. that was uh, part of my book proposal. And uh, then we were negotiating an actual deal and we didn't really get the deal finished until March of 2019. And, but I had approached him prior to that and kept my fingers crossed that the book would happen. And it did happen. I mean, you know, there was never any real doubt that it would, but um, you know, it was, a, it was, a, it was a, it was a process that was, uh, you know, not, not, not like falling off a log. There were some challenges to it. Um, so I got an email from 42 West, which handles his publicity, you know, working through his office, talking to his office, Sicalia production saying, yeah, Marty signed off. He'll cooperate with the book. So that that's me in 2018 <laughs> October. So I'm like, great. And I had this whole grandiose idea that I'm going to, I want three interviews with Scorsese. I want one dealing with the post-production. I want one dealing with the shooting. I mean, I mean, one dealing with the pre-production, one dealing with the shooting and one dealing with post-production and the reception of the film and his career after that. I want three interviews. And I also want to sit down with uh, Scorsese and his editor, Thelma Schoonmacher, and watch Goodfellas and take notes. That was my grand plan. Great idea. Yeah, great idea. It didn't happen. <laughs> it couldn't happen because uh, right after, uh, you know, saying he would cooperate with the book, he started editing The Irishman. And he takes a year to edit his films. And this yeah. was a particularly intensive process for a number of reasons because it also involved digital de-aging, uh, that process. The film itself had shot for almost a year. It was a, going to be a long film. So he kind of, you know, he went, and if you read the book, you see in his process, editing with Thelma Schoonmacher, they kind of lock themselves in a dark room and don't emerge for a very long period of time. He had certain obligations he had to fulfill, and he'd come out and he'd do, do those, but if it wasn't something he'd already been contracted or promised to do, as opposed to just a general, uh, you know, acquiescence saying he'd cooperate, then he wasn't going to do it. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I sort of had a, I talked to his people there uh, who's, who managed his schedule for him and I gave my grandiose plan of interviews and they're like, yeah, no. Nah. We might give you an hour and a half and we don't know when. So yeah. that became, you know, that was that. And then when, Thel when the Irishman was done, Thelma, uh, who I had seen in August of 2019 and said I was doing this book, and we had a very wonderful, cordial conversation. I was moderating a Q&A about the film Woodstock, mm -hmm. which he was an editor on with Marty, who was the first assistant director, and the terrifying stories of the making of that film. Um, <laughs> And she was great and she was, uh, you know, in theory, happy to talk about it, but she had other priorities. She was going back to England where her uh, husband, Michael Powell, uh, was from, and she was going to work on editing his diaries for publication. And her devotion to Michael Powell is strong, very, remains very strong, uh, you know, after his passing. And uh, that was yeah. just what she was going to do. So I didn't get to talk to her, but I did get 90 minutes with Scorsese on March 9th, 2020. Wow. Six days before my manuscript was due. Oh my God. And uh, so I knew then that what was going to happen was all my quotes from Scorsese in the body of the book were going to be from prior interviews and sc books, Scorsese on Scorsese. 
the interesting thing about Goodfellas and, and what made it kind of a challenge to write this book was that it's a movie that's been written about and litigated, you know, an awful large amount. And the question of what is there new to say about it is something that, uh, you know, one person who was interested in the book was like, well, what can you give me that's not in the GQ oral history? Yeah. I was like, well, you know, I'm going to do my own primary research, you know, and I knew the GQ oral history was a legitimate and good thing. And I do cite it in several occasions in, on the book, but I didn't want to lean on it too much yeah. just for that reason of, you know, I don't, I don't want to try and, you know, uh, leech off of something that people consider definitive, but it's not definitive because it's, an, you know, because it had not oral, not oral oral histories fall into this trap, but a lot of the time oral histories do fall into the trap of, of a Chris Farley show kind of deal where it's <laughs> like, Hey, remember that tracking shot that going through the sofa? That was great. Um, you know, and they, that's not the case with the GQ oral history. They do talk about Ray Liotta's struggles with the part and, you know, I kind of leave that be in the book because it was so highly covered in the GQ oral history. But I said I was going to bring a critical dimension to it, that an oral history, unless it's done very cleverly in terms of juxtaposition, but uh, unless that's the case, an oral history won't necessarily bring that. Yeah. And that editor was like, well, I don't, want, I don't want too much of a critical perspective. So we didn't really come to an agreement then. Hmm. Nice thing about working with Hanover Square Press is that they looked at my proposal, they looked at my sample chapter, and they not only gave me permission, but they encouraged me to write the book that I wanted to write. And fortunately, that book is resonating with people who have read it. So I'm, I'm very happy that that happened. But yeah, the interview with Scorsese was amazing because he was kind of grumpy. I mean, not grumpy towards me, but he was preoccupied. There were things on his mind. He didn't look at the interview as an imposition, but he was kind of just, he was very unguarded. So he hmm. could talk about the misery. <laughs> wow. How every film he's ever made has been a knockdown, drag out fight. Uh, because people look at the films he makes now and the budgets he works with and they think, you know, he must, he must have it really easy. He's spending hundreds of millions of dollars on these <laughs> arguably esoteric, you know, uh, um, epic films but no he's like you know you, you talk about you, you mentioned Kundun he puts his the mm. sofa throw pillow in front of his face like Kundun oh no you know <laughs> um, bringing out the dead oh another one and uh, you know <laughs> yes he was able to make uh, Irishman in relative comfort because of the deal he made with Netflix but he said in terms of studio support with very few exceptions and they all had strings attached in terms of studio support, he never felt studio support uh, since doing Raging Bull, you know, wow. and that was and Raging Bull. The studio support was there during the making of it, and then after the movie didn't do well at the box office, uh, not so much. But he said, "Yeah, that was a film where I felt supported by the studio during the actual making and editing of it, and everything since then has been a knockdown, dragout fight." So there you go. But that well, was, I mean, I felt bad for him, but it was also kind of entertaining to see him get agitated over, uh, <laughs> over working conditions like that. Well, one thing I like about the book is reminding people that in 1989, Martin Scorsese wasn't the Martin Scorsese we know. I mean, he'd had a decade of some kind of rough hits in terms of King of Comedy doing very poorly yeah. and really limiting what he could do going forward. And Goodfellas was a pretty giant swing. 
Yeah, well, it's interesting because Barbara Dafina, who, um, who met Scorsese working on post-production on King of Comedy, and they got personally involved and they got married. And then uh, after Goodfellas in May of 1990, they got divorced and it was not, uh, it was not the most pleasant of circumstances. Uh, it was a very tangled thing. But she remained his, uh, a producer for his work for many years after that. Wow. which might not have been on a personal level the best thing for the both of them, but it did yield some pretty great films. But her perspective was that, yeah, King of Comedy was rough to make. Um, the aftermath of it was rough. He was box office poison. But that color of money, you know, Last Temptation of Christ, despite being controversial, was not a problem in terms of his reputation because it was a single thing done with Universal that they committed to knowing that it was gonna be controversial. So everybody went in with their eyes open and then making Color of Money and doing it uh, within the confines of this deal with Touchstone and bringing it in on time and under budget a day, actually a day early yeah. and under budget that in this way that Scorsese had redeemed himself and then could go on making Hollywood films. As Erwin Winkler has said, Marty's the only the greatest independent filmmaker who's never made an independent film. <laughs> Not entirely true because After Hours. But when Irwin visited the set of After Hours, he looked around and said, Marty, when are you going to make a real movie again? <laughs> um, although After Hours is pretty real. Yeah, but, so, so Barbara Dufina's perception at that time was that Scorsese was well on his way to, you know, a kind of a fruitful uh, pa uh, point in his career. Hmm. Scorsese never saw it that way. He tells me stories of how Pileggi uh, or someone close to Pileggi told him, don't work with Scorsese, he's poison. You know, <laughs> Mark Helprin, not Mark Helprin, the political analyst and, right. and, uh, and uh, not cool person. Uh, <laughs> but Mark Helprin, the novelist, uh, Scorsese was developing Winter's Tale, which was eventually made into a rather disastrous film by Akiva Goldsman. Um, they were talking about doing that and Helpern said to him at lunch, he says, I don't know if I should work with you. My agent says you're poison. So, and that's the thing that he hears. That's the thing that sticks with him. So yeah. he feels, you know, that, you know, color of money, he feels the movie's too mild. And, you know, he, he likes it to a certain extent, but he doesn't consider it his strongest work. He doesn't regret doing it, but he never feels the effect of like being redeemed or wow. finding viability. You know, Dafina, as his producing partner, definitely saw that and wanted to capitalize on it. And there was, there was some, uh, you know, in the ways that they worked on, the things that they worked on after, in the wake of Goodfellas, Cape Fear, Casino, those are, you know, big studio movies. And, um, you know, they're doing what they, they want to be doing. But for Scorsese, it's always like, no, I'm always being told no. And you... uh, so that's fascinating. That speaks a lot to his own psychology you know i mean in the commercials that he's acted in and in the persona that he's you know asked to play in in, in certain contexts he's you know this king of cinema but um for him he just always feels the struggle yeah when you mentioned color of money which i feel like is sort of a forgotten scorsese movie because it doesn't feel like the others in some ways you take that and this sort of internet story that pops up once in a while that Tom Cruise and Madonna were almost in Goodfellas as Henry and Karen, and it sounds oh, absolutely than, crazy. That's more, that's more than an internet story. That's, uh, you know, Erwin Winkler confirmed it to me in an interview. 
Yeah, and it's everyone, in his book. Yeah, and in his book, yeah. Um, and um, it's funny how Irwin put it to me because he, he was very respectful to Tom Cruise. He says, you know, uh, you know, this was not a, a part that was right for Tom Cruise, and Tom Cruise would have known that. Yeah. And, um, you know, I mean, you look at Interview with the Vampire and you think, well, some things he might not have known. But, I mean, I give, you know, I'll, 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 I'll go along with Winkler on that. Uh, but, and then, but the Madonna idea of Madonna playing Karen Hill, he just dismisses out of hand. Uh, so I think that Irwin, uh, who's still making films and looking forward to making films, maybe he's thinking of working with Tom Cruise again someday. Um, <laughs> Well, Debbie, Debbie Mazur, Madonna's friend, ends up in the movie, so that's nice. Yeah, no, no, no. I, and, and I'm not sure that they were, I'm not sure the extent to which they were associated at that time. But, I mean, actually, they didn't know each other prior to that. But, yeah, De but Debbie Mazur was, you know, a trained actor. Um, <laughs> I, you know, and Madonna is, I mean, I don't know. I can't, I think Lorraine Bracco as Karen Hill is, is pretty inspired casting. I think, I don't think it was a conscious decision to cast people who weren't that well-known at the time in the roles of Karen and Henry Hill. Um, I think, it, you know, it shook out that way that these were people who were right for the part. But I think it also, it definitely helped because you, you didn't have a fixed image of them in your head and you could really go along with them incarnating these characters, you know. Yeah. Um, it definitely helped. I don't think it was a, a conscious strategy as such, let's cast unknowns in these roles. They knew they needed some name value for the film yeah. eventually and they got that with De Niro but um, you know it, it definitely at the time in particular you know I knew Ray Liotta from Something Wild and anybody who'd seen that picture you know it's an unforgettable uh, portrayal but th that was that was a, that was more or less of a cult hit it wasn't that widely known so mm -hmm. to be uh, the, 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 the uh, lead in this in this mainstream studio film you know, he's a new face for a lot of people. And I think that that uh, that definitely helped. It certainly, I mean, people still, I'm not saying this is a, as, as, a, as a assessment of Liotta, who's a great actor, but more so than Lorraine Bracco, who people know as Karen Hill and as Dr. Melfi on The Sopranos, people still very much associate Liotta with Henry Hill. Yeah. He's... He's, it, it, it's a role that sticks to him. Well, you mentioned SNL before with the Chris Farley show. I think there's something to speaking directly to the audience where they just feel that they know you more. Mm -hmm. um, I just think him doing the voiceover makes that role so iconic for him. Yeah, that's very true. And there's some great things in the voiceover that are just really subtle, wonderful touches that he brought that weren't necessarily in the script. I talk about the scene early on when... Uh, He's narrating himself as a as a thirteen year old boy, and he's looking out the window at the tax at the cab stand and the pizza parlor, and he sees uh, Tuddy Cicero, and on the voiceover he says Tuddy Cicero, and then he just pauses and then he goes Tuddy, and it's a very tender moment, you know. It's the one of the few tender moments in the whole movie, and you get that sense, especially if you watch it, you know, watching it retrospectively and having seen it before, you get that sense of him in the place that he's narrating from missing that guy and yeah. missing the life, even though that guy is the guy who, you know, kills his buddy, uh, kills Tommy. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of, uh, 
living as a gangster in this crew involves embracing a lot of paradoxes. <laughs> yeah. One thing I really love in the book is when you take people through the sequence in the bamboo lounge and how all of those people were cast and you reveal to me, at least I'd never heard this, that the main character in green book, the real guy is yeah. an actor in Goodfellas. <laughs> yeah. He had also been in uh He'd also been in The Godfather. Um, uh, yeah, he was a he was a, he was one of those he was one of those um, New York characters who, uh, you know, he, the depiction of his profession, at least in Green Book, is is very um, very accurate. You know that he was a bouncer. You know, and kind of just a kind of guy, not a not a not a criminal, not a made guy, but certainly someone who operated on that periphery because you couldn't be as i point out in the, in the book you couldn't really be involved in the nightclub business in in the united states and particularly in you know major urban areas like new york city you couldn't be in the nightclub business from the 30s to through the 70s without being in some way you know <laughs> rubbing up against the mob um so this guy um uh tony uh was you know a bouncer and a driver and just sort of did uh, these kind of things and, you know, and then started doing extra work and character work. And, you know, it was Coppola who's casting of the Godfather. Again, like Goodfellas, the casting of the Godfather isn't always ethnic specific, but it's generally ethnic specific. And also when it's not close enough to pass, whereas in the years prior, American movies about the mafia had been things like the brotherhood where you have Kirk Douglas playing right. Sicilian. Don. <laughs> one of the reasons, you know, when you read Bob Evans account of the Godfather, one of the reasons the Godfather was such a tough sell was that those movies like the, you know, the brotherhood bombed and that they were, the, they bombed because they were ridiculous because they <laughs> had these people who had no, uh, relation to to the subject matter, uh, trying to incarnate these um, Italian American mobsters. The, the way the Godfather kind of broke through that was to you know cast people who looked and sounded authentic, and that was one of the many innovations that made the film uh, a classic that resonates. And you know Scorsese can't help but do that. Scorsese's casting is always authentic. It's been authentic since. Um, since Mean Streets, for sure, you know, he gets these guys and he gets the actors who can play them. So, you know, that was a, that was a huge, uh, that was a huge part of, 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 of making it authentic and, and putting life on the screen. You knew so much going into this book. Is there anything that you learned or anything that just blew your mind as you were going? Well, you know, I mean, there's one thing I didn't actually get to put in and it, because it was, uh, it, uh, it, uh, through the cracks in my notes and it should be in the book and maybe i'll try and squeeze it into the paperback edition but that shot of the bamboo lounge of the of the meet the gang all that stuff that's a direct homage to a shot in fellini's film i vitaloni mm. uh now obviously vitaloni being made when it was made in the 1950s uh they didn't have that steady cam thing going but they do this uh dolly shot a a, a, a lateral uh tracking uh, dolly shot of the characters sitting outside um, uh, some outdoor restaurant and the camera's moving to the left and the guys are all acknowledge the camera and they say, hey, 
you know, <laughs> oh, como esta? And I had that. I had that in my notes, and I did not put it in the book. So that was one thing. And I'm not sure I knew that before I started researching the movie that deeply. Um, you know, I found out, you know, some things I probably that weren't too pleasant, you know, the, uh, the rift, uh, a lot about the rift between Dufina and Scorsese and how that affected a lot of things. And, uh, and, uh, but yeah, I mean, the thing to do was, um, putting it all together gave me a larger appreciation for the big picture. And I always learn when I talk to people like prop masters, and first assistant directors, as I did for the book, you know, uh, talking to the prop master for Goodfellas, who has worked with Scorsese uh, for many years on many projects since, and finding out about Scorsese's evolution over the years, says that Scorsese becomes more open to um, suggestions from crew members. Um, but, you know, in terms of staggering revelations, it wasn't so much that as more of an aggregated appreciation of what the various part, what the various crew members put into the film. And I particularly came away with a very enhanced appreciation of Michael Bauhaus, the cinematographer. Mm -hmm. But as if I, I, I mean, I already had a very large appreciation of him, but I, I, if I could have, if I could admire him more, this, this researching this book made me do that. Yeah. Everybody talks about the Copacabana shot, which is obviously incredible. And there's actually a very good story in the Irving. What, what, what's Irving's last name again? I'm sorry. Winkler, yeah. Yeah, Winkler. Winkler. I'm sorry. I just blanked for a second. There's a great anecdote in that story about Henny Youngman ruining the shot by flubbing his own punch. <laughs> yeah, no. You know, he, you know, Henny Youngman, a great stage comedian, king of the one-liners, you know, uh, legendary, iconic, almost forgotten today. Yeah. Um, yeah, his, um, you know, his signature line was, take my wife, dot, 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 please. Um, you know, the henpecked husband persona. And yeah, that's his, that was his, uh, hey, how you doing? <laughs> you know, he was kind of an influence, on, a little bit of an influence on Rodney Dangerfield. Um, and yeah, he couldn't get it right. Everything went right for every take, except Hen Henny Youngman kept flubbing it. Um, this so that three minute was, tracking uh, shot. What's, 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 um, um, What's, what's interesting is, you know, the fact that they did that shot uh, over the course of seven or eight takes, and then they did more takes. They did more scenes that day because they only had the Copa for one or two days. So they had to get all the Copa interiors done in a very short period. So they got, once that shot was in the can, they kept going. And that's because, partially because Michael Bauhaus, having worked with Rainer Werner Fassbender, who, you know, would toss off a feature film over the course of a weekend, um, you know, uh, was used to working fast and could get great results fast. You know, he could work fast, but still make it look fantastic. He's, he was a genius. And he's also a psychological genius because he um, was great at being a calming presence and, and being a source of reassurance for the director. Yeah. When you talked to Scorsese just a couple days after the Oscars, when the Irishman had ridiculously been totally shut out at the Oscars, despite a huge push, did he make any connections between the Irishman and Goodfellas? Oh, sure. I mean, it wasn't as if we spoke about it um, 
that explicitly, but I think there's a very, um, there's a very deeply felt sense of going back to this milieu of, of, the, of the gangster in this explicit way, because he was kind of done with it. He thought, he thought his gangster trilogy was Mean Streets, Goodfellas, and Casino. You know, the, 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 the mobster stuff in Raging Bull is kind of peripheral to the main story. So, and so he doesn't even see The Departed as part of that because it's something that's culturally, the criminality of The Departed is something that's culturally uh, detached from his perspective. And also the fact that The Departed is um, an American reboot of an Asian film. So, but in, in Irishman, he's coming back directly and explicitly to the world of Goodfellas, the world of Casino, and the world uh, where the characters of Mean Streets kind of uh, hover. So, yeah, I mean, but it's, a, but it's you know, it's slowed down. The, the camera tracks, but it tracks slowly, and it's not tracking into the Copacabana uh, it's tracking into a nursing home. You know, Terry mm-hmm. Gross on Fresh Air brought this up with Scorsese and uh, asked if, if that opening shot was a refutation of the Copa shot. It's not a refutation. I mean, you know, as Scorsese put it to Terry Gross, you know, I know gangsters are bad, you know, <laughs> but that's not, you know, that's not the point. You know, that's, you know, it's in there, it's acknowledged and it's real, but the point is like, Within this culture, within this mode of living, how do you live? How do you make yeah. peace with yourself? If you, if, you fe- if you suddenly realize that the life you've been living is wrong, how do you deal with it? The thing about the Irishman is that Frank Sheeran can't quite wrap his head about what he did wrong um, and is sort of left with this spiritual emptiness facing death. You know, and that's yeah. what the movie's about. Henry Hill ends up in Goodfellas facing schnookdom. He's not, you know, and he's thinking about death because he feels like he could get whacked. But, you know, that didn't prevent the real life Henry Hill from kind of coming out and cashing in on the celebrity that this movie accorded him and kind of living very dangerously because that was more important to him. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, we didn't even have to talk about how the Irishman links to Goodfellas, we both kind of, it was like an implicit, you know, theme yeah. of the conversation. As he said to Terry Gross, um, you know, it's a reflection of my life now because I spend a lot of time in hospitals and waiting rooms. <laughs> I, I guess I was thinking about sort of justice for his career in the eyes of the Academy because they keep kind of not recognizing him for the things that they should recognize him for. And I don't know if The Departed is his best movie. I mean, I like The Departed a lot, but that's his most successful movie awards-wise. I mean, to an extent, who cares what the Oscars think? Well, I mean, you know, uh, what's, you know what do they say? He was due. Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't know who looked at the envelope, but to have, like, um, who were who the people who uh, Spielberg, Coppola, and uh, George Lucas, um, you know, present, present the Best Director Award, Somebody knew that Scorsese was going to get it, you know, and he has said, you know, he says, you know, he said in Premiere magazine many years before, um, you know, I know I shouldn't care about this. I yeah. know that it, it, it doesn't really, you know, because most of his favorite directors, most of our favorite directors um, were not really recognized by the Academy. Orson yeah. Welles, 
uh, Hitchcock, you know, they got special awards, but none of their films ever got a direction award, which is ridiculous because I mean, Alfred Hitchcock's um, abusive personality notwithstanding, there's a period where nobody was directing at a higher level than he was, mm -hmm. um, but he was directing within genre. Uh, same with Orson Welles. Um, or, you know, so we're used to, cinephiles are used to the, the best practitioners of cinema not getting awards. So, and that he understands that. So when he says, you know, I know I'm not supposed to care, uh, but he says, I'm from the Lower East Side. You know, this is part of the idea of an American success story. Um, so that's his, uh, that's how he cares. And, you know, I didn't ask him, you know, you know, we didn't sit around going, oh, what a joke, you got it for The Departed. I mean, <laughs> you know, everybody knows, everybody knows, and it's fine. And I think he's fine with it. But I think that's the reason he wants another one is because, you know, he'd, he'd like to get one for a work that's very, very extra meaningful for him. And that may not happen, actually. You mentioned your friend Sean Levy's book on De Niro, which is an excellent book also. And he really makes the case that De Niro has started to care a lot more about awards. And I felt like De Niro's desire for an Oscar was a big driving push in The Irishman. I mean, that he executive produces and he takes on this showy role and does the de-aging and everything else. I don't really have a question. I just, <laughs> I just feel like that's a huge part of it. And I, I feel sad for The Irishman because I do think it's a great movie. No, it is a great movie. And I mean, it's an interesting movie in a lot of respects, particularly because of... Um, you know, in terms of taking risks, he's still doing it. You know, the DA, everybody, everybody has their nits to pick concerning the de-aging uh, process and, you know, uh, how it could have been better or this, that, and the other thing. But, you know, nobody, nobody went out and did it to the extent <laughs> that Scorsese did it. You know, I mean, there's certainly, I mean, obviously David Fincher and Benjamin Button but when you're working with Brad Pitt, it's a whole different can of worms. And it's a lot of different tricks that were used in Benjamin Button that weren't, uh, weren't going to be viable for the Irishman. So in terms of taking risks, you know, formal risks, te technological risks, he's still doing it, you know? Yep. And so uh, that's a huge thing. And it's also a different thing for De Niro because he described his process in the book and how he builds a character from the outside in. And how do you do that when you know that your outside is going to be radically changed digitally, you know? So, you know, people can, uh, and, 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 and it seemed to me a lot of the criticism of the Irishman is very bad faith, you know, when they say, well, you know, they move like old men. It's like, were you really sitting there and watching it and going, yeah, that's how old men move. I, mean, I, I, th I think if you're with the movie, you know, there's some things that are, you know, that are ameliorated, but, but to just kind of, you know, um, disregard the emotional content and just, you know, um, make this blanket statement that you're doing it wrong because of uh, X, Y, and Z that you may or may not have noticed on your first viewing, but you know that everybody else is going to jump on. It's not even worth talking about, you know. I think that, um, what's the word, yeah, the phrase, history will vindicate him. Um, you know, but I don't think The Irishman needs, for me, it doesn't need vindication. It was a very powerful film. 
I keep meaning to wrap up because I'm taking a lot of your time, but you also keep saying interesting things that I (laughs) want to talk about. It it felt like with The Irishman, the fact that it was on television and that people could respond to it from their couches as they watched it and even pause it and respond to it was sort of destructive to the way that we treat movies. I mean, because you don't sort of get to be with the film. You don't have it wash over you and have that experience of doing things on the movie's terms. I can't speak to that because I, you know, I don't know how other people watched it. You know, I mean, I know how other people potentially watched it, but you know, my experience of the film was to see it at the New York film festival and then watch it again with my wife on Netflix, where we were very proper about the whole thing and saw it all the way through because it's that compelling. But I mean, you know, I, I, I don't think Scorsese's unaware of this, you know, he knows people are going to do what they're going to do. This has been a problem ever since home video was invented. The pause button on a VCR. You know, if you have respect for the work, you'll try and watch it or experience it or consume it in a way that respects the work. But if you don't, you won't. And there's very little we can do about that materially. You know, I try and educate people as a professor and, you know, and so on. But, you know, when you're... Um, when you're watching a movie with a group of normal people, <laughs> they're going to do what they're going to do. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, film appreciation is a weird thing because there's a paradox to it that there are, you know, there's some people who are very immersed in it and do it, uh, you know, with, with a lot of attention and respect, but film is also a popular art form, which is what, you know, draws filmmakers to it. And as a popular art form, it's going to be consumed the way it's going to be consumed. We remember, uh, I barely remember, but my parents certainly remember a, a time when, you know, you'd go to movie theaters and you'd just walk in in the middle of the film. And you'd, <laughs> you'd watch the film and then the, you'd watch the trailers, you'd watch the news of the world, the feature would begin again and you'd get to the point, you'd say, this is where we came in. And you'd walk out. The whole thing of, of, of getting to the movie on time for the beginning started uh not didn't start it wasn't the first one but the first major one that really kind of like reset things to a certain extent was psycho you know where they said no one will be admitted during the first 10 minutes of psycho uh and otto preminger followed that up a bit with um bunny lake is missing so they were aware of the issue so they tried to kind of like force the issue and it worked we suddenly and once the you know film criticism uh, yielded the auteur theory and the movie brats started making films in Hollywood. We got this whole idea of cinema as church. Yeah. And, but that's not sustainable right yeah. now. Um, yeah. It was fun while it lasted and we may still treat it that way. And that's good for us. And it, you know, I have to, you know, in my work as a critic, it's important for me to be like attentive and, and uh, even working from home and watching things on DVDs, I have to sit and I have to watch it like I'm in a screening room. Yeah. But uh, that's my job, you know? And for other people, movies are leisure, movies are relaxation. What did Harold Ramis say when people talked about, well, I just want to go into a movie and I want to turn off my brain. And Harold Ramis said, you know, when I hear that, it just makes me want to shoot myself. This is Harold <laughs> Ramis, you know, who is a brilliant guy, but also a director of, really populist sort of films like Caddyshack. But you can't, you know, it's human nature. And um, we have to work with human nature as well as to try and improve it, I guess. And the fact that we 
can't really go into movie theaters in a lot of the country right now. Not for the t- not for the time being, that's for sure. Yeah. What should I have asked that I didn't, or do you have any closing thoughts? I'm just glad you are interested in the book, and I want other people to be interested in the book. I want them to enjoy the book. I'm like I said, I'm really gratified that people are responding so positively. Um, I don't want to be pompous, but the more uh, the more reaction I'm getting, I feel like it was a really good match for me to do this film in this book. And so uh, I'm happy that it's out and that it's opening what I hope will be a constructive dialogue about the film. I wanted to dispel some myths about the movies and about Scorsese's um, filmography in general. I hope the book does that. And I'm just happy that uh, you're interested enough to want to talk about it. Well, I love it. And your publisher sent me a copy that I'm holding up now. And it's the first physical book I've held since the, since the pandemic started, I've been reading everything on Kindle and it's just such a just flat out pleasurable experience to read something so good on paper about this movie that has been with me forever. So thank you so much for writing. Well, it. We need to get you the hardback with this, <laughs> the spiffy illustrations to talk to our publicist about that. <laughs> Man, what a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Tim. I'm, I'm really happy to meet you and talk to you. That was Glenn Kenny. As I think you could tell, I wish I could have kept talking to him for hours. His new book is Made Men, The Story of Goodfellas. And as a new dad, let me give you some advice. Made Men, The Story of Goodfellas is what your dad wants for Christmas. It has gangsters. It's a book. Just, it's such a layup. You should just show up at Thanksgiving with Made Men, The Story of Goodfellas. Your dad will be delighted that he's getting his Christmas gift early. And yes, I do hear you saying, hey, jerk, I don't celebrate Christmas. That's true. But your dad does have a birthday. There's Father's Day. And also, your mom likes Goodfellas. Your mom likes books about gangsters. Maybe there's someone else in your life who would enjoy this wonderful gift. Maybe the person who most deserves the gift of Made Men, The Story of Goodfellas, by Glenn Kenny, is you. I also want to invite you to visit us on moviemaker.com, where every day we do original reporting and talk to filmmakers from Miranda July to Werner Herzog to rising talents you'll be hearing about for the first time. We assume you're either a filmmaker or someone who loves filmmaking as much as we do, so we don't waste your time with gossip and nonsense or who's scolding who on Twitter. We also publish Movie Maker Magazine, a 26-year-old publication that has interviewed everyone. The latest issue of Movie Maker is on newsstands now. John David Washington is on the cover, and Caleb Hammond wrote a terrific profile of him. And we invite you to subscribe to our fine family of podcasts. This one, also the Low Key Podcast, where Keith Denny and Aaron Lanson and I geek out and go deep on films and cinematic TV. The latest episode is about the new film Residue. And I want you to check out a show I revere, Dan Delgado's The Industry, about Hollywood's weirdest decisions, The latest episode is all about how Superman 4 became a disaster, and it explains how Superman 4, which does not feature Morgan Freeman, helped launch the career of Morgan Freeman. I know I'm dropping a lot on you, but just go to moviemaker.com. It's all there. I'm there. I'll see you there. moviemaker.com. Hold up. 